You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Across the course of the Ashes, we've been working in partnership with Charles Tirrett. If you want to start the year wearing something sharp, Charles Tirrett has a collection of smart casual menswear, all now with an extra 10% off their current sale using the code WISDON10. That's code WISDON10 to get an extra 10% off their January sale. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yazron and with me today over Zoom is former England batter Mark Butcher, features editor of Wisdom.com Tahir Hashim and the managing editor of Wisdom.com Ben Gardner. Um, well, guys, we finally got a competitive test to savour with Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad blocking out the final couple of overs of the day to secure the draw and avoid the whitewash for England. Um, before we start, I'm just going to read out an email from Shervo, our listener, who only started watching cricket at the end of the 2018 summer. So he sent this in after the drawn New Zealand-India test at Kampur last month, and he reminded me that that email is equally applicable for this week's show. He says, you'd be wise to file this email under pointless but cathartic or possibly preaching to the choir. But if you'll indulge me for a moment, how precious a thing is the five day drawn test illustrated beautifully, by the way, a team's rear guard somehow can save a test match. I can't think of a result in any other sport that better reflects so much of life. No black and white, cut and dry results, no outright winners and no outright losers. Just a glorious but mundane joy of a team simply battling as hard as they can to survive until the end of the day. It's genuinely beautiful and something I feel evangelical about. Here's the final wicket match saving stands in the future. Butch, it's, it's too little too late, I suppose, for England in the series. But given the position England were in, 36 for four in that first innings in response to 400 odd, that was a pretty, pretty good performance from England. Yeah, yeah, pretty heroic, actually. And yeah, it was, it was, really, it was really heartening to see England um, battle away as much as they did. Um, I think Australia, for their part, were you know they were they were very good for the win. Um, I think that the decision um, in the first innings, the declaration of first innings, funnily enough, I think was probably the, the worst decision than the one in the second. Um, 
they were flying along in that first innings. I didn't understand why they just didn't make as many runs as they possibly could first time round, even if they batted into the next day, just simply because, um, you know, you make the follow-on target that little bit further away and you also leave yourselves with less to do should you have to bat again um, second time round. So I thought that was the error more than the, than the de- declaration um, on the fourth evening. Uh, and, you know, if it hadn't have been for perhaps the seven overs that were lost to, to rain just out of, the, out of the blue a bit on the last day, they probably would have won the game. But, um, but terrific fight. Great to see Zach Corley make some runs at the top of the order. Um, you know, that, I mean, he's so beguiling because he strikes the ball so cleanly. There, there are very few players, English players particularly, who hit the ball as crisply and as hard as he does. Um, and, you know, given, given some more tweaks um, with perhaps... Um, his positioning at the crease um, and, his, and his sort of back shoulder of getting involved too much and, and bringing the bat across the line. Um, you know, I, st- I still think three is his natural position for England. At the moment, they need someone at the top and that's where he'll, he'll play for the moment. But um, that was terrific. Johnny Bairstow was quite extraordinary as well. And there, there are lots of great stories in it. I mean, how many of the team that have played in that game will end up playing at Hobart is uh, something that remains to be seen because... Uh, they're not in good shape going there, but it was, uh, it's terrific that they're not going to lose it 5-0. Mm. Um, ben, that final day was, was arguably the best day of the series. England batting the whole day. Uh, they looked in a pretty strong position with Australia needing six in that final session and, the, and they'd, Australia still nearly pulled it off. Um, genuinely excellent batting, genuinely excellent bowling. There was that Cam Green, Yorker to Crawley, that Cummins double wicket maiden. Um, just an excellent topsy-turvy day of Test cricket. Yeah, I actually thought, I mean, six wickets feels like a lot in a session because it would be a lot if you were none down. But I think when you're four down and you have England's tail, six wickets feels quite cheap, but especially when you have the second new ball. Uh, it come in spell with that second new ball was in- incredible. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen him get that kind of in-swing into the, uh, into the right-hander. That felt like a new thing for him. But yeah, it had so much kind of ebb and flow to use that cliche. And it felt a lot like that. SEG test last year actually which India drew to set up their series win at the Gabba and that you had sort of a young player come out and stroke it all around uh, all around the ground I don't think there was quite the feeling this time that England might have a go at chasing it down as there was last time but still it was a, that, that, that was a, a lovely passenger play and then Australia came back into it and then England just about held on at the end but Butch is right to point to the, the rain delay on the fifth day I mean in terms of because it, it was heroic from England and they did fight really hard and it is really good that they were able to gather themselves from you know, the rubble of what has been a pretty dispiriting, often depressing tour where loads has gone wrong for them. But I think one of England's failings in some ways, and you can probably go back quite a long time with this, is how much they've looked to heroes to kind of drag them out of situations and have felt that if they have, like if you look at like the whole Trevor Bayless era, for example, that was set up by picking as many match winners or players who you could ask to be heroes as you could and hoping that one of them would win you the game. Whereas a lot of other teams just pick players who they hope will contribute and then that builds to a test match win in that way rather than wanting heroes as such. What do you mean by picking heroes? Surely you want match winning heroes. Well, I mean, I I think you want players who can sort of perform consistently rather than having a... There was a a line, I think... um, uh, I can't remember which test it would have been, but a few years ago when England uh, needed, needed quite a big last day chase, I think maybe the uh, South Africa series, the first of the South Africa series, um, and I think it was maybe Stuart Broad in the last evening, or the fourth evening said, yeah, we just need someone to stand up and be a hero and then we can chase down 300. And it's like, yeah, okay, you can chase 300 down by having someone score 150. 
or you can chase 300 down by having like six people score 40. And that doesn't really seem to be how England, like, like, like they do seem to pick, they, they, they like, you know, we, we, we like having players who like, like Crawley's innings draw so much focus because it's, you know, a glorious 70 odd that can mask a lot. Do, 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 does that make any sense or not really? No. Yeah, it makes some, yeah, it makes some sense. I guess, you know, you, you compare the type of all-rounder Stokes is, the type of all-rounder Cam Green is, or might become, as the ball just hits the top of off stump, etc. With Stokes, he's quite a reactive bowler, and quite often as a bat- batter, he's, he's quite reactive as well. So, so um, I know he wants to come in, but I, I kind of made this point on commentary during the Test match that, that England, England's batters in particular seem to fare much better when, when the task is laid out in front of them in very, uns, you know, very certain terms. Um, they're very good at colouring 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 in the picture, but not so good at drawing the outline. Um, so first innings, it's very difficult for, for people like Butler and Stokes, etc., to just go out there and make runs when there's nothing else in the game. You have to set it up. But when there is a task for them, kind of later on, England tend to be mercurial. They have players that will do, you know, Stokes himself is the, is the exact epitome of that. He will, he will do something utterly brilliant, win the game all by himself, or... Um, you know, or, or just kind of not not feature at all, and 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 there are a lot of guys who, whose performances are like that um, over long periods of time for him. Mm. Yeah, and 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 the point was also going to be that the, the, it, it was a heroic effort, but it was aided by obviously a couple of decorations, a bit of help from the weather. There was that strange patch on day one, which feels ages ago, but when Steve Smith kept running from the field uh, as soon as it started spitting to uh, basically he didn't want his bat to get wet. Uh, and you think Australia would have quite liked a couple of overs more at the end of the test match, but they ended up uh, not getting those. Uh, but the, this, this, as, as that final it was great, and it was a great moment, and it does show what I've quite often said is Joe Root's best trait as test captain, which is to hold a team together like other England teams and England tours would have disintegrated by this point. And to be able to show that kind of battle from 36 for four is heartening in some ways, but it also doesn't, I don't think anything is especially solved. I mean, Zach Crawley's is just one innings. We need to see quite a lot more before we can be convinced that Zach Crawley is, uh, you know, the 10-year test opener he looked a couple of years ago. And the, the, I guess Berto is the big positive in that that is as well as he's played maybe ever in a test match. Um, but I think England's bowlers still didn't look hugely threatening. Uh, Australia still made four high. I mean, it's, it's, there's this, you know, it's not as if England actually matched Australia in this test match they just got a draw because they battled really hard which are, it's not as if they're any closer to winning a test match in Australia I guess. The one kind of thing to, to look at there is that the worry was when, when England had to make their batting changes that you were looking to the bench and you weren't really going to see a side that was improving but Bairstow's come in, Crawley's come in and they have improved as a side and that is I guess the one thing one thing to take from that because I think there was that concern where in those first few tests where we thought, no, this is probably, this is still England's best 11. Um, but I think now we're kind of getting to the point where we've realised, no, that this, what we've, what we've kind of seen in the last few days, that was probably the, the best side England were going to put out in this series. Ben, you mentioned Johnny Bairstow. He, he was sensational. Seventh test 100. He was part of that crocked middle order in the second innings who held off the Aussies very well. Um, ben, most of us at some point, or another of this series have questioned Bairstow's spot on the side. His record over the past three years wasn't very good. But um, in this test match, he looked more like the batter who was the, the, arguably the best keeper batter in the world at a stage five or so years ago. Um, other than the runs that he scored, what did you sense was different about Bairstow in this test to what we've seen over the last year or so? Uh, 
I don't, it's, it's a tricky one because his, there's, there's quite a lot of facets to that period where he's not scored very many runs. Um, in that, to begin with, uh, it kind of, because obviously whenever someone falls out form, he was in such good form at the start of 2018, he was probably almost level with Joe Root as England's best batter at that stage with 200s on that tour of Australia and New Zealand. And so then it kind of, it didn't quite catch attention straight away that he was struggling for form. I think England pushed him up to five the start of that summer I think and that's when it sort of started tailing off and then so you kind of think okay he's been messed around he's been asked to do something in another format and maybe both of those things have uh, made him lose form maybe he can get it back and then he just kind of didn't get it back even last summer when he looked a bit better than he has done in the past there still weren't those big scores I think he was dismissed five times last year between 28 and 30 so it kind of seemed like okay maybe he's made a couple of technical things but actually maybe it's the other thing that's gone now he now can't sort of do it for, for long enough to to be the player that he once was. And also, he's 32. Is it worth investing in a player who, like, England have already invested a lot in? I mean, it was just, but this was just brilliant, basically. I mean, there was so much pressure when he came in. I know it's a dead rubber, but, like, it really did feel at 36 for four, even with the time loss on day one, that we were headed for a three day finish, that England were going to be 70 all out again, and then asked about again, and then not very much better than the second innings. I mean, they're on 36-4 for 70 balls. Uh, Scott Bowling, I think we're going to come on to a bit more, but he was bowling brilliantly. All the Australians bowling brilliantly. There was absolutely no letter. Um, and I think what was really impressive as well was how well-paced the innings was. He actually spoke at the end of that day about uh, how you have to earn the right to put the pressure back on the other team. And he was sort of 15 off about 45 or something and then started sort of slowly moving up through the gears. And then when Stokes got out, was, you know, smashing sixes as we kind of have seen him doing white ball cricket and this was these were really tough conditions as well I mean the SUG pitch when you look at you know a drawn test in any conditions you wonder if the pitch has been a bit flat uh, and the SUG pitch has often been a bit flat but while I think possibly there was quite a lot of movement with the new ball in that first innings and that maybe dropped off just about when Bairstow came in but then the up and down bounce was reasonably severe actually I mean obviously he got hit on the hand Stokes was getting hit loads and he was chanced he wasn't dropped in that whole innings, I'm pretty sure. And that one time he was here, hand was the one real moment of discomfort. And he was, yeah, it looked as technically good. He just looked properly, I mean, Zibeso's always fired up. But there was a moment when he came off the field for tea on that uh, third day and was getting some stick from the crowd. And then him and Stokes just turn. Stokes as well, I think, just to leave it to Stokes or senses that he's the guy to, to respond here. And uh, what, what's the phrase? Is it, that's right, just turn around and walk away weak as piss which is just uh <laughs> which is a brilliant brilliant and then obviously comes out and plays a brilliant after tea as well so yeah I mean he, he looked he looked so so good and I think that is a conversation changing innings around Besto where that's all that trust that England put in him has been repaid and I think that there is enough evidence now that like you can possibly have him as part of a functioning test middle order I guess. But how much of an impact does changing of roles have on a player um a lot of people have use that as mitigation for not only Bairstow's inconsistency, but Moeen Ali's as well over the years. And in the last year, Bairstow has batted in four different positions in 10 tests. And I mentioned on last week's show that those 10 tests cover four separate stints in the side. Um, I was thinking back 
during this test match that when Ed Smith was national selector, he'd regularly referenced that over the last few years, there were three outliers in county cricket in terms of averaging clearly more than everyone else. One was Root, two was Pope, and three was Bairstow. And if you look over the course of their careers, Bairstow averages 50 for Yorkshire, Root averages 44. Uh, a few years ago, Bairstow was the best keeper batter in the world. Not long after that, the gloves were taken away from him. He was promoted up the order. There's, there's lots, of, lots of stuff going on there. Part of the reason why Johnny Bairstow had the gloves taken off him was because England couldn't buy a run in the middle order. And quite rightly, Johnny Bairstow, in my opinion, at, at that time, was one of the best two batters in the country. And the other one was Joe Root. So he was moved to perhaps, you know, perhaps wrongly to plug a gap elsewhere. But England were more desperate for middle order and, and top and middle order runs than they were for wicketkeeper batsmen. If you think about the one thing that we have an enormous surfeit of in the country, it's wicketkeeper batsmen. And, you know, his reaction to that was, was, I thought, was slightly disappointing because I know he desperately wanted to keep wicket and, and, and there was, you know, there's that whole tug about his old man and all the rest of it. But I still think that, that his, his best position or his, his position of most usefulness as an England player is to be someone that could potentially score six, 7,000 runs in the top order. And he's not going to do that batting at seven. It was a waste. He was a waste at number seven, and that's why he was moved. And I, and I kind of, you know, I understand why people are upset about that and say that it messed him around. But in terms of what the England team needed, in terms of what he is capable of doing, it was the right call. Mm. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, all of, the, all of the other moves around is basically that all come stem from the same thing, whereby Joe Root wants about a four. You've got problems with numbers one, two and three. Ben Stokes has ended up at five instead of six. You know, people are being moved, shift around to 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 cope with, um, to cope with sort of with holes in the in the team. If if they had a, a consistent side and an opening pair that were going out there and making regular regular contributions, a number three that you could rely on, then all of those people, all of those guys would be set in stone, and you wouldn't have quite so much movement in the order. The movement in the order comes because England have been unbelievably inconsistent. And they haven't been able to find a top three worthy of the name since Strauss, Cook and Trot. Um, and so that's why. I mean, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see that there is any other explanation for it. In terms of his, in terms of his sort of um, his technical prowess, so all, all the rest of it is battling instincts and all that, that kind of stuff. Um, it was funny. I thought he played much, much better after he got hit on the thumb. <laughs> I got a text from AR Butcher saying, hey, you, you watch how straight his bat's coming down now that he can't choke it so hard with that bottom hand. And it was true, he actually, from the moment he got hit on the hand, he, he sort of went, he went through the gear, played absolutely beautifully. Uh, and I'm really pleased for him because he's a, he's a sensitive soul, but he's a lovely, lovely lad. And he is so desperate um, to play for England and do well for England. Mm. And, um, you know, hopefully that's the start, start of bigger and better things. And, I'd, I, you know, I'd love to see him regularly be you know, top top five, top six in that side because I think he's he's one of the best we've got. Numbers don't reflect it at the moment, but I think they will if he gets his head around the fact that that's where he belongs. Sorry, just on what the effect on moving up and down the order has on a player. I mean, that's something a lot of people who haven't played the game say can affect a player. You obviously yeah. did. What what impact does that have? I don't know. It depends on how you see yourself, really. Um, you know, I was, I suppose I was, I was an opener when I got picked to play for England. I opened the batting for Surrey. Um, but I much preferred batting three for England. Um, and it didn't bother me in the slightest if I had, if I had to move, um, because making runs is making runs. But if, you, if you're looking at a, you know, a career path, a career choice, obviously you're going to have a preference as to where you, as to where you go into bat. 
Um, but the, I think the difference between five, five, six and seven is, is kind of marginal, depending on what your other duties are. So, for example, when, when Johnny was moved up to number five and he was still keeping wicket and Josh Butler was in the side at number seven and not, I was, I was kind of like, well, that's, you know, that's crazy. You might keep for 150 overs and then be in in the, in the 15th over of the game. Your legs are tired, your brain's fried. And you've got to go out there as a top order batsman with the energy and focus to be able to make regular, regular hundreds. Now, you're much less likely to do that if you've had to keep wicket as well. So, you know, the, 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 the roles that you have to play, Ben Stokes, if he's going to be... So part of the reason why England very rarely ever think about um, going in with just four bowlers in a test match, number one is because they're not, not sure that the spinner's good enough to do that. And number two is because in that case, your third quick is also having to bat a number five. Now, Ian Botham used to do it back end of his career, but Ian Botham was Ian Botham. You know, it's kind of, it, it's a lot to ask of players to go out there and, uh, and to, do, to be that involved in the game and that pivotal to, to, the, uh, to the fortunes of your team. So, you know, it's all, it's all very well to have all-rounders, but you have to look at what, where, you, where you want them to add the most value. And for me, Johnny Bairstow adds a damn sight more value as a batsman in this particular England setup than he did as a batter-keeper batting at number seven. But this is the thing, is that with what England do going forward... I'm always trying not to, not to think about it until after the fifth test because it almost seems like something will happen in that test that makes uh, that makes the conversation change again. And also because it is just so it, it is just so hard to figure out right now. I mean, Bearstow, his record in the top five is so much worse than it is uh, between six and when he's bat at number eight. Um, well, and, it's because it's because it's easier. Yeah, but it's, 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 <laughs> you know? it's yeah. So if, if somebody you think is that good ends up batting down at number seven, you put somebody less good in at number five. What do you think the returns are going to look like? Not, not is, very it, good. Which is, is basically what's been happening. Is there possibly an argument that his? Because I mean, the the, the the main technical struggle in the last few years has been with that straight ball, and therefore with his defence in particular, that it's just kind of not solid enough to regularly keep out a ball that's like pretty well straight. Yeah, basically, yeah. And, if, and so if he is just, a, if, 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 if his thing is, is that he's not a player with, a, with that good defence, but he is a good enough stroke maker that he can, you know, if, if he's given the opportunity to play lots of strokes with more freedom, which you'll get at six and seven, that at number five, maybe that is the, the argument to play him at six and seven. Well, but, then if yeah, but, him, but in that case, Ben, then, then the entire team wants to bat at number six and seven, doesn't it? The entire yeah. team would rather bat at number six and seven than bat well, at numbers one, two, three, four and five, where it's a bit more difficult. That, I mean, that's just... You know that's part. That's the that's the art of the game. To, to be honest, though, but that's kind of what that's kind of what England's problem has been for the last six seven years. You had like four or five blokes who all wanted to bat a number seven, correct. number six seven. Yeah, correct. And so and so you know this, this and this kind of this this speaks of the problem that England have got in in my view, in that everybody would rather do the easier gig. You know, at some point, if you're gonna if you're gonna have more results or results that kind of go your way or games that you can set up from the first innings of, of matches, you need guys that are gonna go out there and, and be bloody minded and make seven hour hundreds. Do you know what I mean? That's mm. that's kind of the point. And this is kind of why England have have a have, have a batting lineup that, that is capable of somebody playing an unbelievable innings from time to time, but the rest of the time you get knocked over for less than two hundred. You need some nastiness, some blokes who are willing to go in there and kind of dig out, dig out runs and not, and not just make runs when it's kind of the, either, either when the situation has been laid out in front of you and there is nothing else to do 
or when the conditions are, are so lovely and straightforward, you can go out there, put your foot anywhere and smash the crap out of it. I guess uh, Bairstow's bloody-mindedness manifests itself in a different way to that. Uh, he, even when he was at his best a few years ago, he was genuinely quite a counter-attacking batter, lower down his... He's never really been someone whose hundreds would be based off a particularly solid technique. It's always been he's been looking to take the attack to the no, bowlers but, and soon he does and, that. And batting, at, and batting at number five or number six, that's perfectly fine, isn't it? Um, so I'll, let, let's talk. Sorry, go on. I mean, I, I just wanted to say that it, there is something quite remarkable remarkable about talking about a guy who's played, um, what, 80 test matches, just scored a century and you still don't really know where he should bat whether you should be a goblin or not. I mean, I think it's still, <laughs> you can't help but find that slightly funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Ollie, Pope's, Ollie Pope's probably going to keep wicket in the next game about seven. So, I mean, it's just, you know. <laughs> the, the other thing is as well, sorry, just just on look, looking at post Hobart and why it's been so difficult is that, you know, all now of Milan, Root, Stokes, Bearstow, and to some extent Butler are going to have claim, reasonable claims to having like justified their plays in that top seven. Uh, and then you're looking at an England team who say they need sort of like a reset in test match cricket, all of whom from, you know, three to seven of age 13, you've got Bairstow then there in that kind of plum position uh, where you might have been in a young player and he's 32, but that's might be where he's best. It's just, it's just like, I'm not saying that that's not, that means that that's not the way to go. It might be the way to go. And you have a couple of years and that is a pretty solid middle order, possibly, even though, even though it kind of hasn't been already. It's, it's just, it's just such a, such a complicated dilemma and that's why I'm trying not to think about it so much until <laughs> there's a bit more space to I guess. <laughs> yeah, let, let, let's save that conversation for after Hobart. Um, Tar, let's talk about someone whose career has been so intertwined with 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 Besto, the other JB, wicket-keeping, white ball great, who's had a complicated recent relationship with Test Cricket. Um, Josh Butler, he picked up an injury in this Test match. He will miss the final Test of the series. Um, do you think he's played his final Test? Um, I, think, I think it should probably... It should probably be the end. Uh, what? How many test matches is that now? Well, I mean, it's definitely more than fifty. Yeah. Um, I, I thought <laughs> I wrote ahead of the series that I thought he could actually have quite a good one, just because. Uh, sure. I mean, both sides. I mean, Australia obviously slightly more well prepared. Quite a few of the batters played Sheffield Shield, but you know, you look at Steve Smith, David Warner. Uh, the Australian quicks, they were also coming off the T20 World Cup. England were obviously quite underprepared. And I thought just the way Josh Butler had been batting in T20 cricket, I know that is obviously the argument doesn't work that that translate di- translates directly into longer form. We, we know that, that that's that's never really the case. But just mentally, he looked in a good place and in a way similar to how he might have been when he'd done so well in the IPL a few years ago and then gone straight into test match cricket and just had that sense of freedom with, with the way he played. I thought there might still be some of that. Um, but he's just had such a such a poor series and just kind of look, as each match has gone on, it's kind of just gotten worse and worse for him. You know, he did start off all right with the bat in the first test. Um, but then when he started dropping catches behind the stumps, you could kind of see it just influence the way he was batting. And there was, uh, it's just looked, a, we've been watching a guy who just doesn't seem like he's had much clarity in the way he's, kind of thinking about the game. And we, we saw that with the shot uh, on Boxing Day of, of Nathan Lyon. Um, I think he, 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 he probably knows himself that he's had, you know, he's had so many chances. Um, you know, we were talking about Bairstow earlier and the argument has always been made that, you know, England, 
brought in Joss Butler at number seven, like Butch was saying before, not to keep just a player at number seven. And that is indicative of, of really wanting a guy to succeed. And England have really wanted him to succeed. They've, you know, he's been, he's not really been dropped and since he's come back since 2018. He's obviously missed tests through rest and rotation and all that kind of thing. But he's been pretty much the first choice guy there. Uh, first as a specialist bat and then as a keeper. So the opportunities have been there for him. Um, he's not been as bad as a test cricketer as people have talked about him. I think he's done, he's done all right. Um, he's um, played some pretty important innings, played some really good innings. Um, but I think it's, it just feels like the right stage now for, for England to move on, uh, to give someone else a chance. I think he's probably... He's probably played his, his, yeah, I think he's probably played his last test. Yeah, he's, he's had quite a weird series as well, I think, because he actually looked really good in the first innings of Brisbane um, playing playing that counter-attacking knock there. And he nearly helped England to a very unlikely draw at Adelaide. Um, I guess, like, I, can't, I can't remember which coach it was, but I think it might have been Rambrakash who said that it's actually him just playing normal test innings is where he seems to struggle the most. Kind of what Butch you were saying earlier about a problem that quite a lot of the England team have. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I think he's he's done he's on okay, uh, better than I think he's often made out. But I've I've always been a bit skeptical about how he'll do in Test cricket because mainly because he actually played quite a lot of first class cricket before he played uh, Test for England whilst he was in white ball regular, and there was not that much there to suggest that he'd carry what he does against the white ball over to, to the red ball in international cricket. I mean, I looked at this up today. So for Somerset, he averaged 31 in first-class cricket. For Lancashire, he averaged 31 in first-class cricket. For England, he averages 31 in test cricket. Um, and how I many hundreds? He, did, did you see how many hundreds he'd made first-class uh, cricket? Not, not that many. More, more than he's done in, in test cricket, but not that many. Um, and there's one thing I thought was quite interesting in this test match was when Pope took the gloves and did decently, by the way. Um, just like the, the energy from behind the stumps was just something that was missing. And I think that's not always something that Butler's... I think Butler has provided that before. It's just that that has noticeably declined as the series has gone on. Yeah. yeah. What, sorry. Just just in terms of defending a bit of the series, I mean, you're, because he also, he's got a not out in there, right? Like he was not not out when England were 68 all out. So he's had three failures, two... One, one, one good innings in the first innings of Brisbane, one really good innings. I mean, I think a lot of people are just quoting his average, forgetting that he faced 200 balls for 26, batting to save a test match. Like, that doesn't help your average much, but it is a, that was a brilliant innings. Uh, and then this, this test match, I mean, I just don't think you can read basically anything into it because he had a broken finger that's enough to rule him out at all. Like, I think that definitely affects his batting in that first innings. Mm. And it's all, I think it's amazing that he faced... 38 balls in the second innings with it. But so, so I mean, it might, I, 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 I do, it might be his last test. And I do think that if England are going to have a reset, as they're call, sort of calling it, uh, he is a sort of an obvious person to say, focus on white ball cricket, you're our next captain that, in those formats. Um, there's not a huge amount of upside to you being a test keeper in that we know that sort of like the ceiling, I guess, is him averaging, like, like not simply doesn't have this moment, but the ceiling is he's averaging 35 at number seven as a keeper, which is, good to very good, but England might be able to find someone else who does that. And it's therefore just not worth it. But I don't think it's because Joss Butler is not good enough for test cricket. I just think it's because England are choosing to prioritise their resources in a different way, personally. Look, like I think he's had. look the thing is, it, it, depends on, it depends on, number one, who they choose to replace them and what that person does. Um, you know, I mean, the, the one, thing that, one thing that hasn't happened with Joss, and I think, which is the one thing that, that everybody hoped, and again, it, all of these things are sort of hope over expectation, is that he would be able to come in and, and sort of play these counter-attacking innings and, and, you know, really add value to 
to you know put time back in Test matches for England, um, you know, in the in the in the Gilchrist sort of mode, um, and that never that's never really materialised. Keeping's been has been tidy pretty much. It's been pretty good actually, with the exception of um, the couple of drops at Adelaide. Um, so there's been no real issue with the with the wicket keeping, but I think in terms of the impact that he was he was hoped to have had as a as a as a lower order as number seven or whatever for England just hasn't really hasn't happened, um, and therefore, given that he's now out through injury, whoever comes in and that you know I don't think Ollie Ollie Pope's future is as a batter keeper batting at seven because again I think his 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 ceiling is much higher than that as a, as a middle order player. When that will come, I don't know. You know, he's still a very young man. Um, you know, somebody like Sam Billings might be thinking to himself, well, hang on a second, here's a real chance for me. I think technically Sam is as good as, as, good as any of the England batters, actually. Not somebody that you'd, again, look back, look at his stats in Canada and go, oh, wow, he's an absolute must pick. But there are very few of those around anyway. So that might be an opportunity for him. Obviously, Ben Stoke, Ben Folks is, um, you know, by far and away the best keeper and also can handle himself with a bat contrary to what a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of critics will say. And so, you know, whoever gets given the chance needs to take it. If they take it, then that might be the end of Josh Butler. But I'm not, I'm not calling that. I'm not calling for him to be axed forever because it very much depends on what the people who get given the gig do um, in his absence. One interesting thing is about the, the whole sort of Butler taking on that Gilchrist role. What, what, what is, kind of a shame is that he's never really been part of a or well, certainly in the last few years he hasn't really been part of a sort of well-functioning test yes. side if he'd, if, he'd, yeah. if he'd been part of one that had a, a very solid top order some reliable yeah. runs in the middle order I think we would have seen more of those innings and that would have been that would have been good fun really but he's just never really had that scope he's no. he's always well, I, he's always coming to the crease when England are in sort of serious trouble rather than when you know they've got 300, 400 on the yeah. board, and, and it's sort of lay into a, a tiring attack. That's a that's a terrific point. I mean, that, that during one of the the thousand of thousand rain breaks in the test matches, they were playing the the SCG test match from ten eleven, and you saw what Pryor did at the back of hundreds from um, from Cook and trot making runs, you know, etc. You get you know you get a player like that going in while the team's on its knees and they they're halfway through the second new ball, and that's that's when they. That's when they when they do what they do. But Josh Butler has been unfortunate in that the people above him have never put the runs on the board and put him in that position. So um, you know, you're, you're a victim. Sometimes you're a victim of circumstance as much as you are your own um, failings or your own successes. But just to say one thing, just a little on the pro Butler side again. Just just that I think he was picked to be that Gilchrist role, and that, and that was bizarre because England would never have had a need for that sort of thing. But I think what he's what they, they didn't what do expect. Mean, but, what do you mean never had a need for that sort of thing? Why would you never? Where would you not have a well, need? As, 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 as in they didn't have a need brilliant. for someone to quickly turn three fifty into five fifty, so you could have enough time to force a win. That was not England's problem in Test cricket. But I think that what they got and didn't realise or didn't expect was that he actually. And I know he probably he might have issues. Again, I think it can be overblown the amount that he has issues with a blank canvas because he has, I think he did show progress in that. I mean, that 150 against Pakistan at the end of... But that's, what, that's one That's one normal 100 in 50 or Sure, tests. sure. But, but there's also one normal situation. I didn't get that huge amount of normal situation. I think, I think, there's, I think the frustration against Butler is, is, is reasonably fair. I completely get the talent that he has had good periods, but going back to when he first got on the side and when he got recalled in 2018, I can completely get what Ed Smith was thinking. But my frustration was, if you gave a lot of specialist batters, you can bat seven, don't keep. 
they're going to do pretty well. <laughs> and I think it was an incredible opportunity. And I think the frustration is that he's been given such a long rope by England for a long time, perhaps justifiably. And this was always seen as a tour that his game might suit most. And it hasn't worked now. I don't really get why England would, would persist with him, especially given his importance in white ball cricket. The, 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 the point I was going to make is that he has... He- it's actually a lot better than given credit for because he's not as good as given credit for when he or he's not as good as others in a, in a normal situation when a situation presents itself that needs playing in a certain type of way for quite a decent period he was very very good at that I mean he played a big role in, in winning in that series against India which they could easily have lost uh, and a big role in winning in England that series in Sri Lanka which is actually a, a was a very impressive test match win I know it hasn't worked out the same since then but then he was at the end of the 2020 summer was sort of established as one of England's like better players, basically in that Pakistan series, he was really, really good. And then was rest and rotated out for almost the whole of that winter and then played a bit in the summer, but again, missed that New Zealand series. And then has had a, like a, a slightly below par, but definitely not a horrid Ashes series. It's a, as I say, I, I get if England want to move on because they, want a, a reset and fresh phases and all that. But I, I, like, I still think that Butler's test career has not been a failure. And uh, I think that there is, if he were to be persisted with, I don't think it would be a failure going forward either. Last thing, I, last thing I'll say on it is I don't think the rest and rotation stuff with Butler is actually that much of a mitigating factor because that's just going to be his career. So... He, he is going to play IPL. He's going to play loads of white ball cricket. It's not really, okay, it's a defence for, it's, an un, it's, it's a way of understanding why he hasn't done as well as we might have expected him to. But that is just, unless he suddenly stops playing a lot of white ball cricket that he, we just take for granted he's going to play, that's always going to be an issue. Um, ahead of the final test, by the way, as we've kind of mentioned, Sam Billings has been added to the squad as cover. Uh, reasonable chance he, he keeps at Hobart, given that Best has got a sore thumb and Pope, despite doing well with the gloves at Sydney doesn't do that that often in um, county cricket. Butch, Zach Crawley scored 77, uh, the first half century by an England Open of this series. Can you explain Crawley to me? Um, because I think, and I hope I'm wrong, um, I, I personally think we get we might get too excited by these flashes of brilliance from Crawley. Ian Chappell on TMS called him the future of England cricket during this knock. Um, because the reason why I, my opinion on Crawley hasn't really changed after this innings was that we know that he's amazing against high pace and, uh, and and pulling high pace on bouncy pitches. And if you separate his game between his attack and his defence, there's never really been that many doubts over the former. And for the latter, does a 90-odd ball knock really tell us that his game around the off stump is that much more secure than it was before? Do you see what I mean? Like, the potential is clearly there for good reason, but I'm not sure my views change. Like, I think he still will score test hundreds. I think he's still brilliant to watch. And, um, you know, he's learning on the job to a degree, but I still think there's, there will be a reasonably rocky ride for him at the top of the order. Yeah, well, I, I, he's young, isn't he? He's a very, very young man. He's played, he's played quite a lot of first-class cricket, but not not a not a massive amount. English players tend to tend to blossom and find themselves much later than their counterparts in in other parts of the world. And the things that he's very good at kind of outweigh the things that he's not so good at. I think. Um, and that he will only get better at that because, you know, being being a test player as to not being a test player is quite a, is quite a, a strong motivator for working on stuff that you're not very good at. Um, and he is not the sort of sort of lad that's going to kind of be 
you know, if, if he was a shrinking violet, if he was somebody that was just kind of happy to wear the cap every once in a while and kind of just you know, to be able to say that I'm an England player and, and walk away, he wouldn't have been caught saying, I'm due to get 100 in the Sydney test or I'm capable of getting 100. You know, here's, here's a guy who, who backs himself. Um, and if you are seeing him for the first time, as a lot of the Australian commentators were, Chappelle, uh, Mark Taylor, whatever, you are going to be beguiled by the way he strikes the ball. You're going to be impressed by 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 the by the the quality of his stroke play. Now, you know, I, I still think I still think that there are a couple of there are a couple of things that need fixing, um, and they shouldn't be that difficult for somebody for an athlete of his talent. He's an incredible athlete that like, moves brilliantly, catches brilliantly at slip. So when you're talking about, you know, micro movements and managements of your, of your setup and the, and the way that, you're, that you present the bat face, it shouldn't be difficult for somebody as, as good as he is or as talented as he is to make those adjustments, to make himself more consistent, mm. to, yeah. make the, to make the ball around off stump not look like it's going to get him out at, at every turn. Um, and so, you know, that, that is a case of come back, from, come back from the ashes, play at Hobart, might make runs, might not. Find somebody that you trust and work like absolute mad in the run up to the in run up to the West Indies series because there is there is a place for him in the top order. He will be batting one, two, or three for the for the next what are we talking four Test matches at least until we get to the to the English summer. Um, and so look, the, the the great thing about him is everybody has a, has a go at sort of Sibley and Burns because they can't hit it off the square, but they kind of you know they they can hang in there and defend. But then everybody has a go at Sibley because he can, because he can hit it off the square, but his defence isn't so good. And then at the moment, all of them are much of a muchness, with the exception of Burns, who's probably scored, you know, got a little bit more credit in the, in the bank in terms of his, his past performances. All of them are much of a muchness in terms of their productivity. So you've got to kind of get away from, got to get away from how people go about it and how they look and what they're good and bad at and just look at that, end up looking at the numbers and end up looking at what, your, what the bottom line is. Mm. Um, none of them, none, none of them have a have a sort of a, 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 an unimpeachable um, case for staying in that side. But I would say if you're if you're looking at ceilings, which you know Ben's brought up a couple of times, then Zach Crawley has the highest one probably out of any of the guys that have been tried in the top three for for quite some time. Um, we had one question from a listener called Luke who asked: Zach Crawley to me looks more like a middle order player than an opener. Um, he has all the talent, he has all the shots. Um, should he be another one who should bat five or six? No, no, because it, because his his talent is against is against the the quick bowl quick bowling. You know, the, 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 traditionally, and again, it's difficult to talk about England in traditional terms because so often numbers five and six are having to do the job of number three and four anyway. Um, but you know, traditionally, you you want somebody in the thought mode who not only is a terrific player against a quick bowling, but it's brilliant against spin. You know, you kind of, those are the attributes you want for guys batting at five, six and seven. So no, I, th- I see him as a number three. I think I see him as a sort of a, a, a ponting type player. But, you know, that, that, that requires some real work around your judgment around off stump. Um, you know, she talked a lot about off stump guards, all this kind of stuff. First innings. He didn't change anything between the first and second innings in terms of his setup. But in the first innings, every time, every time he moved, his first movement took his head that far outside the line of off stump and he just looked like he was going to get out every ball. Second innings, his first movement did not take his head anywhere near as far outside as off stump or not as often anyway. And so every once in a while, he'd get the wrong side of it. 
but the ball had didn't move quite so much and he kind of you know he got he got a few away and they they ended up getting a little bit short at him and he destroyed them um so you know i, I you know i think i still think he's making life unnecessarily difficult for himself um but there you go that's 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 his choice but as i said the only way you stay in the side is by making lots of runs um and I think I think out of anybody, he has a really, really great chance of being able to do that. So someone who's not scored lots of runs is Hasib Hamid. Uh, Ray asks, what do you think about Hasib Hamid's future? Do you think he'll play at Hobart? Um, no, I, I, I don't think he should. Um, he's, I mean, his struggles are pretty apparent to anyone. Um, you don't have to be an expert to, to, to watch Hamid right now and know that he's, he's, he's really struggling. Um, what I found quite bemusing about the whole situation is that uh, look, we're we're all just watching um, Hamid bat out there in the middle. Uh, we're not seeing what's happened happening in the nets, uh, but it's been pretty clear that he's been struggling since the the, the Adelaide Test, really. Uh, and that kind of makes it hard for me to envisage how he's that that he's putting on a show in the nets and that he's middling them because um, it really does seem like he's he's a bit lost in in what his technique should look like for for the situation. Um, it's clear that he's kind of struggling with that with that extra bounce just and so 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 what the, the thing that's kind of worrying is that England have kind of just sent him in there in these last couple of tests and you know presumably out of hope rather than expectation they've they've kind of just said here you're 24 <laughs> 24 years old uh, you've only just come back in county cricket and started score runs and now look go play out there and and hopefully you'll get a score. And that's kind of that's kind of the worrying situation about all this, where the the, the sort of management of him, um, and and now he's going to go back to he's going to have to go back to to county cricket and do it all over again. Um, it's hard not to look at the case of Hamid and and see it as one of as one of mismanagement. Really, um, it's been quite quite sad to watch because obviously everyone's everyone's rooting for him. How can you not root for him after everything this guy's been through? Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a it's been it's been a difficult watch. Yeah, I don't know about I don't know about mismanagement. I think I, I think you know he, he kind of played all right at Brisbane, made a couple of you know made made twenty odd second dig, played okay, and they've kind of given him three test matches to try and to try and figure it out. I mean, if he'd have been left out after failing in the in uh, what was the third one at Melbourne, everyone would have said, well, you're going to give you haven't given him enough of a chance. Um, right now, he looks like he's in need of being taken out of the firing line, and so I'd have no no objection whatsoever for him to be replaced by Burns or whatever, who's <laughs> like everybody else has played no cricket at all between uh, between his last test and this one, mm. um, just to to give the lad some respite. Um, look, he, <laughs> test match cricket is bloody difficult, and this bowling attack of Australia is is is, uh, is seriously hot. Um, I thought in second innings he kind of. The first innings and the last test match before that, he's been kind of, you know, trying to get his trigger movements right. They're all too, they're too late. The ball was already halfway down before he'd finished moving, finished making his first move. And therefore, you can't then make another move to get out to the ball or get right far, far back. Hence, he got bowled through the gate in the first inning. Second innings, he looked okay. And then got a, another beauty from Boland, who at the moment, just quietly, is kind of the greatest bowler has ever played the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite it's absolutely ridiculous what he's doing at the minute, um, but yeah, he, he he probably he probably shouldn't play at Hobart for his own sanity as much as anything else. Um, and then he, and then he'll have to fight back and, and come again as as will 
as will virtually all of England's top order players. They'll all have to find periods out of the team and find the way back until somebody nails it. Um, and that's the unfortunate truth of it at the moment. Yeah, just uh, on that second innings, I think it was especially the fourth evening when it, like, because the thing with me that can be, I mean, because yeah, as you say, we all want him to succeed. And that's the frustration is that he often looks for like passages that like it is all working in sync and that like you can see why it makes sense. Like on that fourth evening, he was playing it right under his eyes. And then the next morning, that was when he was reaching out in front again. He was dropped before he was dismissed. Uh, and so I agree that he has to take out the final at Hobart. I wondered if what you meant to about his management was the decision to sort of recall him to begin with after or not, not a huge amount of evidence. And I was, I was, I was trying to work this out for myself, whether I, because at the time it felt a bit hurried in that he got hundreds in what, one championship game that summer, two of them on a road at Worcestershire. Uh, it got that hundred against the India, the touring Indians. Most of the runs were scored against the spinners and against Shardle, the medium fast bowler. Uh, so there, there wasn't a huge amount of evidence to go on. And I, the only thing I could think was that they kind of thought counter cricket had kind of messed him up before. So as soon as there's even half a case to pick him, because we think there's a test player there, kind of get him out of there and see if he can do it in test cricket. Because, like, it, does, that, does that kind of make sense? That, but but, but that, the, that, that was the only argument I could think of, basically. The, but the only thing I'll say to that is, is, that, that, is that if you were, if he'd been taken out of a, uh, out of a situation or out of county cricket, um, in a year where uh, the opening batters up and down the country had been smashing runs all over the place, and you were kind of and you'd selected him out of a bunch, a bunch where there were lots of people with more experience scoring more runs, and you'd say, "Wow, that was, you know, that's kind of an interesting pick." But as has been the the issue with 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 picking people at the moment is you're often picking them on what you hope they might do, because there is you know batters are not scoring vast amounts of runs. Of course, there are exceptions to that. But there aren't many. It's a, it's a massive. The, the problem is, is that you just don't have. You, you don't. You don't look down the, the list of eighteen counties and go. Well, there's thirty six openers there, and, and fifteen of them could play for England. That's just not the case. Mm, I completely agree. And, and Ben, Ben, you're right. I've been thinking about that a lot as well. In isolation, it didn't really make sense. But there was no one else. There was no one that people were saying was a standout candidate in county cricket. I mean, at the end of the season, people reeled off a few names, but those guys hadn't really done that much by. Um, May to really justify selection at the time, and I, I kind of, I kind of worry with Hamid. I, I do wonder, has he ever really been a Test match player? Should he ever really have been picked in the first place? I mean, the, there's one game that doesn't really make sense to me. It's not that India tour. It's when he scored two hundreds in a county championship game against Yorkshire. If you take away that game out of his career, which was now six years ago, um, he's never really had like even a single game against pace where you're like, this is a test match player, even in first class cricket, his numbers against pace in first class cricket are like really mediocre, you know, averages less than 30 against it. Um, he scored so few first class hundreds. Um, I do, I do, wor- I do worry. I completely got, I get the logic of why they wanted him back because they saw something a few years ago um, early in the summer. But I do worry that he's possibly never actually been the player we thought he might, might have been. Now that we've we've seen a bit more of him, I don't know. I hope I'm wrong. Um, ben Harry asks, does all the focus on England's abysmal batting mean that we're not talking enough about the fact that England haven't come close to taking 20 wickets in a test yet? I think that's a bit harsh because England did get 18 wickets at Adelaide and they did bowl Australia out for 267 at Melbourne. They didn't get the chance to take 20 wickets because England batted so badly. Um, but you kind of alluded to it earlier on. You didn't think England looked that threatening here at Sydney. 
No, I guess also, I think some of the focus is taken off the bowling by the fact that there are people who aren't here who would have made a difference, I think. Like, it's hard to say that, I mean, if, if Ollie Stone and Joffre Archer were here, it would be a much different proposition as an England test attack. And, I mean, it's, it's also hard because a lot of the guys haven't bowled that badly, but we, I think they're often, they're all doing the same role in the attack that needs people doing different roles, I think. Um, that was probably especially true at Adelaide. Uh, where you had um, the, 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 was it what, five right-arm medium seamers and they, and they did a pretty good job of tying Australia down and building some sort of pressure. And, you know, maybe if a couple of player misses get edges, then it's, a bit, then it's different. But that's where you really want someone who can, uh, who can make the difference, which is Mark Wood has, he's had a, he's had a kind of series sum up Mark Wood as a test cricketer in a lot of ways and that he has bowled really, really, really fast. Uh, and has you know troubled some of the best players that Australia had him. He's got Labuschagne now three times in three innings for low scores, which is in some ways reason enough to pick him uh, on its own. And so you could argue that actually the numbers don't that the well the numbers don't flatter him definitely, and that maybe those numbers are good enough. But then you would also hope that a bowler who bowls as fast as he does would just at some point blow away a side, and he hasn't done that either. So uh, yeah, I mean there's mitigation in terms of England have had players they couldn't call upon. Uh, there's obviously been mismanagement of the spinner, which has meant that he's only now started bowling okay. Uh, and that meant that England had sort of a pressure valve again in that first test and then picked an attack that was kind of too same in the second test and again a bit of a pressure valve in the third. So there's lots of mitigation that I mean, yeah. I, that, so there's mitigation, but yes, their attack is not quite suited to Australian conditions. And I think we knew that coming in as well. Um, let's talk about Australia. So Usman Khawaja enjoyed an amazing comeback test match. Yeah, he hadn't played for Australia for a couple of years. He's now 35. He only played because Travis Head caught COVID. Uh, he scores twin hundreds, one of very few players to ever do that at the SEG in test cricket. Um, he's now said he doesn't expect to play at Hobart when Head returns. Um, what did you make of not only how he played, but how Australia might use him or might not use him um, in the last test of the series? Yeah, I mean, it's quite a rousing story, really. Uh, you know, Kawaja uh, has played for Queensland for quite a few years now, but he is from he's from Sydney. He grew up playing for New South Wales. So this sort of a homecoming for him uh, and a chance, I imagine, that he probably might not have even seen coming a few months ago. Uh, he'd been out of the test side for a couple of years. I think when he started the Sheffield Shield season um, late last year, he kind of... Uh, he started scoring some runs and there was talk about him returning, but I think he was quite the way he was speaking in the press and how he's spoken in the press in the last few months is that he's played test cricket. He'd love to do it again, but um, you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Uh, that's been kind of a, uh, you know, the way he's talked is of a man kind of at peace with himself of, of where his career is at. Uh, so this was probably kind of unexpected and, and I've got obviously quite unexpected in that, a player got COVID and that's how he got back into the team. Um, but yeah, I mean, he batted beautifully. I mean, he's been, he's a strange case because he's, he's been there for such a long time, not played as much cricket as you might have thought. He's still only played 40-something tests, which is weird for someone who's got an excellent record, had a pretty strong record before this test match. He was still averaging 40 after 40-something um, tests. Uh, and it was... Yeah, and he looked in control. And like we've talked earlier, this was not a, a flat deck. There was there was life in that pitch, and and he got through it and and batted beautifully in in both innings. 
Do you reckon he opens at Hobart? Well, sort of ahead of this series, I kind of thought when it when it was the kind of a toss up, when it had been said that Marcus Harris was pretty much opening by George Bailey, uh, and it was a toss up between Head and Kawaja. Uh, my instinct was that the strangest pick Kawaja. He averages more than fifty at home. Head also has had a pretty and has a pretty strong record at home. But I just looked at Kawaja and thought, there's you know he's 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 one of Australia's best six batters. He's he's got to be in there. Um, Head obviously. You know, that selection paid off and you kind of thought that was going to be their batting lineup for the rest of the series. Um, I, I would pick Kawaja to open uh, with David Warner. I think he's he's obviously opened in Test Cricket before and done all right. I mean, a few innings. Um, and he's quite simply, I just think he's a better batter than Marcus Harris. It's quite it's as simple as that. Um, I get that it's probably not that straightforward a decision. Uh, Marcus Harris has been given a run. He's still... Uh, a younger batter than Kawaji. I think he's 29. He's still someone you could, you know, you could say that you want to give someone like that time. Uh, and he's not had, I mean, he played a pretty key knock at the MCG. He's got a couple of starts in the last innings. Obviously his career record doesn't look great, um, but they've said that they're giving him a run and you can kind of applaud that and respect it. And especially in a side that keeps on winning test matches, you would think, why, why bother? Why not just give the guy one more chance? Um, but I think, Kawaja's case is just so strong right now. You can't really look past him. Uh, and the fact that they will also go to Pakistan uh, in a couple of months. Um, I just think the, the fact of a, a Warner-Kawaja opening partnership, it looks, looks a strong one and one that could work feasibly quite well on that tour. Uh, having with us, having seen how well Kawaja's kind of improved against spin, how well he played in the UAE a few years ago against Pakistan. Uh, and I think that knock he made in the UA, the 141, was when he was opening the batting. Uh, so yeah, it was 90, 97 or something, opening the batting for Australia. Yeah. So it kind of just makes sense for me, uh, for him to come up top. But yeah, well, I mean, what a story, though. Twin sons and you come back to us in front of his uh, his wife and daughter. And quite, I imagine it must be quite an emotional few days for him. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but what would, what would your reaction have been if you were left out after scoring twin hundreds in Test match? <laughs> Well, it wouldn't have happened, would it? Either way, I wouldn't have scored twin hundreds, and I wouldn't have got left out afterwards. No, he's, he's not going to. I don't think they'll leave him out. I really don't. Um, I think, I think they might be looking elsewhere other than Marcus Harris at some point, anyway. So whether or not Kawaja opens in this next Test match at Hobart, and then for the for the series in Pakistan, and then isn't and then doesn't play again. I mean, Australia Australia are more likely, I think, to. Um, to pick for the win in the series rather than look look as far ahead as, as we tend to or as we've got suckered into doing in the in the in the recent past. Um, you know, Broadley said it himself, didn't he, after his uh, after his five for that we've really got to stop got to stop doing this where we're kind of, you know, always always looking out for tomorrow and, and, and missing out on what's happening today. So um yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he if he opens a batting a hope. I hope he does. I mean crikey, it's it's just um it's just a no-brainer, if you ask me. I always find it quite funny when when Broad says that because I'm not sure there's been an England cricketer in the last 25 years who benefited more from England looking to the future than Stuart Broad at the early stage of his career. Um, but anyway. no, no, probably probably not. But I mean, the interesting thing about that is is that when Stuart came in, he kind of made an impact, didn't he? I mean, this there's a there's a big difference between looking to the future. And say, put it this way. You've got, a, you've got a functioning top six that scores a lot of runs, right? And then you have a, a retirement or whatever it is, or somebody gets into the top of the order. 
the other five guys continue to churn out the runs and therefore you you know you 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 pick a 23 year old opener or number 3 or whatever and you give him 10 test matches to find his feet meanwhile the team continues on its merry way and, and is winning and, and is a functioning unit that and under those circumstances it's fine but under the circumstances where you just kind of you can't score any bloody runs you know bringing in young players to the slaughter um in a in a in a team that is that is really struggling, kind of does does nobody any good. Does the team no good? And it does the young player no good either. Ben, is Scott Boland actually properly good? Yeah, I, th- I think he is. I mean, I don't know how much Test cricket will play for Australia still, even though I think he is really good. I mean, he's just so accurate. He's he's barely missed his length like all series. Uh, it's freakish, really. Um, yeah, and, and so he he was one of the main architects of that spell of seventy balls that for no run in the first innings and bowled really well on the final day as well. Uh, and just, it, yeah, it's just, I think it's, it's interesting seeing what that says about the Sheffield Shield compared to counter cricket. Cause you were saying before we went on air that, that it's been sort of, he, he's talked about as the guy in the Sheffield Shield that is, you know, sort of cut above ready for test cricket. And we've seen that sort of bear out when he comes into test cricket and is, you know, uh, but, but bowling in the eighties, not missing the spot, attacking that top of off, can't get way he's taking those wickets uh in english cricket that guy uh the the, the english got bowlers was craig overton really for for so long people saying this is the guy that deserves another crack at international cricket he's uh you know he can't get in the way he's, he's pretty brisk he's a cut above everyone else and then you see him come in in the summer and he's actually high 70s no quicker than he was the first time around he's like, but d- d- decent like not not saying craig overton's an awful bowler by any means but the, the, the gap between him and Scott Boland, I wonder if that's kind of the gap between counter cricket at the moment and the Sheffield Shield, and uh, that's interesting, I think. But yeah, he, he's been absolutely brilliant, and I think it was that, you wondered if in the third test, if that was just a freak, that's it for seven, and I mean, obviously, his test average is probably going to end up a little bit higher than, uh, than what it is at the moment. Uh, yes. Uh, but but it's not as if, you know, I think it's, it's, it's as low as it is for a reason as well. I think. One of the things with, with you know, comparisons between the, the, the Shield and the county cricket, and this, this goes back for, forever, is that your, your margin for error in, in England is, is much greater than it is in Australia. Um, and so therefore, you know, supreme accuracy has always been sort of like the, the, the number one currency. Um, of course, with Australia, with the way that Australia are able to pick their attacks, they've also got guys who are bowling 140 plus, you know, nearly 90 miles an hour, but they also have the accuracy as well. Whereas in England, we tend to look at it as one or the other. You're either kind of 78 miles an hour and very accurate or very fast and all over the place. Well, they, you know, they kind of narrow it down to, to having both, both things. Um, the, the, the thing that's impressed me most about Boland is the fact that, you know, the, the Kookaburra notoriously difficult to move off the straight once it gets past 25 to 30 overs old. And yet, literally every ball does something with him, as well as it being um, very accurate. He's always getting it to, to nip or to bounce. Um, and it's been, a, it's been an extraordinary, extraordinary entry into Test Match cricket. And of course, you know, Hazelwood gets fit again. He doesn't play. Um, it's pretty straightforward, you know. Hazelwood will will come back into the side, uh, um, and it will be Hazelwood, Stark, Cummins, Lyon all over again with with a bit of Cameron Green thrown in. So he should enjoy it while he can. 
Yeah, unfortunately, he's an injured out for the final test. Um, at, at the moment, he's he's only he's got fourteen wickets from two tests, so he's two wickets off Lyon, who's the leading wicket taker in the series. So if if he's fit and plays at Hobart, there's a reasonable chance, especially because Stark's kind of doing the, the, the is kind of having your, your classic Stark series where he starts really well and and slightly declines as the series progresses as he ties a little bit. Um, but there's, there's a reasonable chance that Boland plays will end up as a leading wicket-taker in the Ashes, having only played three out of the five tests. Imagine the odds of, of that at the start of the series. Ben, you made the point uh, the other day that Alex Carey could end up having a George Bailey-type test career here unless he gets a few and keeps a little bit better at Hobart. It wasn't great behind the sticks here. He dropped a couple of catches. The missed run out of Bairstow was actually very crucial in that final day. Bairstow nearly got run out, coming back for a second at the start of his innings there um yeah Carey's quietly not had a great series has he yeah I'm not one to talk about keeping technique and all that sort of thing but a couple of prominent names have started to sort of uh raise concerns Brad Haddon's talked about it I think on Australian radio Jack Russell said on Twitter that it's something to do with his right leg not being strong enough and that's something that a frailty that a lot of Australian keepers have apparently but yeah I mean he's not shown a huge amount with the bat, albeit he's not had a huge amount to do often. And I think, I mean, talk about the declaration not coming early enough. It's, uh, and, you know, Pat Cummins has done a lot right as a test captain so far. But I think when you've got a guy in yeah. uh, a debut series, when people do focus on averages so much, as we've seen with a chat around Joss Butler and his average, when you forget their innings, to then say, okay, you've got to just go out and smash from ball one, you're probably going to get, like, at most 12 runs here. Uh, and then he gets out on a first ball back, and that that is going to make a pretty big dent in his average come at the end of it. But have, yeah, having said that, there's not been not seen a huge amount so far. And, I, but, and so George Bailey obviously played in that 2013-14 series uh, and played all five tests, and those were his only five tests. Uh, and that's one of the few five 0 wins where you've had the team unchanged throughout. And to have a guy have that as his only five tests is a is a bit of a strange one. But I can also see him having a George Bailey type uh, career in that George Bailey was a a brilliant. What, there for a while and Kerry has had a decent start in Whitewell cricket. I can see him being an Australian captain for a decent amount of time in that format. So, you know, but yeah, Australia have other options. They have Josh Inglis, who people really like. They even have Tim Payne, you know, <laughs> to come back at one point, maybe. Um, so, yeah, they'll face a decision on him anyway, but they do really like him. That's the thing. They, they see him as a potential future leader in all formats. They think he's good around the dressing and they think he's a good personality. They, they think there's something there. So, that works in his favour. But yeah, he's not had a great go of it so far. Mm, you do like defending underperforming wicketkeeper batters at the moment. Um, but yeah, Taha? I mean, yes. you do, do realise who uh, Australia's national selector is right now, right? George <laughs> Bailey. So what, yeah. Alex Carey, future national selector. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, uh, Taha, I'll go to you for this. Sam asks, most pre-series predictions were 3-1 Australia. If England win in Hobart, which is admittedly a big if, would this series not be as bad as everyone makes out? That's a that's a huge if. <laughs> Will it be as bad as everyone's made out? Well, no. I mean, because I think there are, there's there's ways there there's there's losing and there's losing, isn't there? There's kind of being in being in the game or being in the series. England have just not been in the series. They weren't real. They weren't in the game at Sydney at all. You know, for all the for all that it was that it was heartening and uh, and uh, and heroic and the rest of it. They weren't in that game. You know, they didn't bowl Australia out the first time. They were they gave away a lead of 122 in the second from 36 for four. They didn't get anywhere near bowling Australia out the second time. 
and a, and a, and a 45-minute rain squall stopped Australia from winning the Test match, and that's that's as simple as that. And they've not been even, they've not been even close to being in the in the, the previous three matches. Team hasn't made 300 yet. Um, you know, there, there's one for uh, one for the people defending certain certain techniques of batting. The team hasn't made 300 yet, not once. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> If they were somehow miraculously, I mean, I don't, we don't know if Ben Stokes is going to play. If he does, it will only be as a batter. Um, in which case, you know, the, the chances are England won't play a spinner. Um, you know my feelings on that. I'm not going to go there again. Um, and it, if England bat first, you can see you can see it being over pretty quickly. Pitches tend to be very, very flat in, in Hobart. At least they were back in back in the dim and distant past. Um, and so, you know, England might have a chance of making making a lot of runs. They'll also point to the pink ball as being, you know, this is our big chance. But of course, Australia won nine out of nine. So they're, they're, they're bloody good with the pink ball. And we're not very good with the pink ball. <laughs> it's just, so all the omens are not looking particularly good. Just the, the question of how bad, or are England as bad as we think they are, to be a bit facetious, depends on how bad you think England are. Uh, like um, I think even if you look back a year ago you know when you know things were looking a bit brighter if you still asked anyone even after that first test win in India uh, how good are England wearing in the world you probably said not as good as New Zealand Australia India probably best and all the rest uh, since then they've only played those teams and okay the gap's probably a bit bigger than we thought it was and the gap has probably got wider in that time but what we still don't know is how much worse uh, like if, if they have actually dropped down the pecking order or if they if it's just there's a big gap between the top three and then the rest of the world and it might well be that they go to West Indies uh, and win there that, that could still happen you know and still do have good players and then get have a decent home summer and then actually you're like okay and then, and then the other question is how good do you think England should be should England be competing with those three probably well, they, they should and, that, and that, that's a... the thing but it's it's I don't think it's anywhere near the 90s is the thing no offence, Butch. Uh, in, in the uh, England aren't near the well, hey, world. Hey, hey, in the 90s, it was, it was gen- three twos we had in the 90s. We did lose 5-0. <laughs> That's true, that's um, true. But in, and, in terms and, of world positioning. Yeah, uh, West, West Indies, no, oh, yeah, absolutely. We were, but, but we're bottom in the world now, aren't we? We're bottom in the world. We were bottom in the world in 1999. England team hasn't won, um, you know, hasn't won in the West Indies since 2004. I mean, that's... That's another, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that after the Hobart Test match, but that's another one where I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, we should send out a, a, a young side, an inexperienced side down there. Hell no. They'll, they'll get roasted alive out there. And, and you know, losing becomes a habit as much as winning does. You can't, do not take the mickey out of going to the West Indies for, for a Test series. Mm. Um, absolutely. I think that is all we've got time for on today's show. Uh, we're doing an extra pod later in the week where we'll talk about South Africa's win over India at Johannesburg and also Bangladesh's amazing win over New Zealand um, at Mount Monganui. It's not going so well for Bangladesh in the second test match. I think that'll be done very, very soon. Um, ben and I did a YouTube video on that test match. If you want to hear our reaction to that, head there. Um, as always, let us know what you think of anything we've said in the show on our in, in the comments on our YouTube channel. Cheers Star, cheers Ben, cheers Butch. As I said, we'll be back later in the week. Thank you very much. Sports Social Podcast Network.